This is Montclair Talk, an in-depth look at the issues, people, and ideas at the heart of the community. I'm your host, Christopher Bowe. Today we speak with Montclair author Dionne Ford about her book, Slavery's Descendants, Shared Legacies of Race and Reconciliation. The collection of personal stories by descendants of slaves and slaveholders contains moving and powerful lessons for us all. Welcome, Dion. A pleasure to have you on Montclair Talk. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. So I, I found your book, uh, Slavery's Descendants, um, profoundly moving. It's it stayed with me, and I, 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 I'm betting that it'll stay, for, stay with me for the rest of my life. And I think you could probably describe this book in myriad ways. So one of the things I was going to ask to start off with is, um, how would you describe the book? Sure. Yeah. So I would describe this anthology, Slavery's Descendants, as a collection of stories of, by people who are descended from enslavers or descended from enslaved people or sometimes both. Um, and that's as far as I'd go because <laughs> people, the different writers get into different aspects of their stories. So um, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. So obvious next question is what brought you to this project? Um, how, how did you get involved? Um, were you involved in something before that, that brought you through into this? Sure. So I guess I should have also in my description said that the people who are uh, telling their stories in this book are all members of an organization called Coming to the Table. And that's how I got involved with this project. Um, I was researching my own family's history. My great-great-grandmother was an enslaved woman. My great-great-grandfather was a man who enslaved her. And um, I'd been interested in my family's story for a long time, but I had started to um, really get some traction with making some inroads into um, the research on it around 20, 2009 and 2010. Um, and in 2010, uh, part of my research brought me to descendants of the woman who had enslaved my great-great-grandmother. Um, and uh, we started to work together and it was mostly good, but there were some <laughs> bumpy uh, times. And uh, I thought to myself that it would be great if there were like an AA Ancestries <laughs> Anonymous, you know, for people doing this kind of research, just to be able to kind of discuss, you know, the kind of emotional difficulties of, um, having to work with people whose people enslaved your people, you know? Um, and sure enough, there was one, there was this organization called coming to the table. And, um, so I contacted them and, uh, I began to just, uh, you know, work with them and they, um, were having a national gathering, their first national gathering soon after, um, I, uh, contacted them. And I would go on to that. And I just started to get involved with them. And um, 
over time, uh, someone brought up the idea of, of collecting people's stories. And so uh, I, I helped <laughs> and was glad. To- uh, the, and the, the collection of those stories now, were th- did you active solicit, actively solicit these stories or had they been brought to coming to the table before and just co- collected and put together? Sure. So some some of the writers uh, in this anthology had already written books about their family's stories or aspects of their family's stories or when they were in the process of um, writing books. My co-editor, um, Jill Strauss, was in a uh, writing uh, group that Coming to the Table organized. It was like a monthly group where you would meet uh, online and in like a conference call, uh, kind of like we're doing now. And, um, and they would talk about their different projects that they were trying to uh, write about. Um, Many of the people in in Coming to the Table were trying to, you know, get their stories down on paper. Um, And it occurred to Jill that, that, some people might find it inviting to try and collect their stories in this more compact way, as opposed to, you know, their one story in a long form whole book project. The anthology uh, process might be inviting to them. And it also occurred to her and to me that it would be great for coming to the table as an organization to have kind of this um, physical collection uh, in a way that kind of represented what their um, organization was doing and kind of represented the people in their organization. Um, so um, she said, you know, maybe we could collect everyone's stories. And she talked to the executive director about this and he said, it's a great idea coming to the table has a kind of policy of um, when they have a project in their name, that it be headed by both a person descended from enslaved people, um, well, I should say African descended person and a European descended person. So Hmm. Bill is European descended, I'm African descended. And when uh, she told the executive director about her plans to do this, he immediately said, you know, I have a person for you <laughs> and gave her my name. There's, there's a really powerful simplicity in this, uh, people telling their stories. Uh, I found that uh, profoundly moving in some ways to just the simplicity of storytelling and almost uncovering similar things no matter what perspective people are writing from. And I I was really curious to hear you as you were editing this and going through these stories, uh, what your feelings about how these stories overlap. I I found almost shared experiences, whether it was the descendant of an enslaver or the descendant of someone who was a slave. Yeah, um, I would I would definitely agree with that. You know, one of the things that we did with the anthology was organize it around coming to the tables, uh, their um, their like system, um, 
I just want to read what those things are because that will, I think, make more sense. So we organize them around their four interrelated practices. Their practices are uncovering history, making connections, working toward healing, and then taking action. So we thought, you know, it would be helpful to organize the stories in those four um, themes. What we noticed is almost every story could go under any one of those themes Mm -hmm. um, because each of them touched on some aspect of those four, um, those four ideas, those four concepts. Um, And I guess I often noticed, and maybe you did too, that with um, descendants of enslaved people, getting the story was a huge emotional drive to know their family's story because that was what was lost with slavery was information, you know, documentation. Um, So uh, even names, you know, uh, there there are often times no last names. So the, the just getting the story for the um, descendant of the enslaved was, was a theme that was a continual theme. Often what I noticed with the descendants of the enslaver, when they were thinking about how to um, maybe repair the damage um, caused by uh, slavery through their ancestor, their way of doing that was often to uh, give names, the names and the information that they would find in their family's documents, wills, deeds, et cetera, that might name enslaved people. So um, their thought was to give these back. Um, So those were the two of the themes that I noticed most often. Well, it it almost, and, and sometimes I found that getting the story was also part of the narrative with the descendants from enslavers uh, so long in their family's history, people had either not spoken about it or lied about it. Yeah. Um, it was truly interesting that everybody's trying to find something here. <laughs> and for generations, there have been bl- barriers for whatever reason put up for, for finding out exactly what, what had happened in people's families. Yeah, absolutely true. A lot of a lot of shame. The uh, one of the things I found really interesting was the the family reunions, and the family reunions where people were invited to participate, whether uh, it was. Um, African-American family reunion and someone who had been researching what had happened in their family and enslaving people, they were invited or uh, uh, someone researching their family being enslaved and running into two ladies in Kansas, uh, taking, taking them around. And is there anything that we can all learn here? I, I found these, this, the centerpiece of family reunions and an inclusion 
really an interesting template for small actions to take in the future of how some of this can be undone. Um, did, did you encounter any moments when you were putting this together? Like, well, maybe this, maybe this is a path forward in some of these stories. Oh yeah. I mean, I felt like there were so many things that people were doing individually. Um, and then on broader, on a broader scale that were absolutely a, a path forward, you know, a, a broader scale is, um, Joe McGill who writes about, um, going to different slave dwellings and sleeping mm -hmm. over in them and inviting people to come and attend those sleepovers. I attended one of his sleepovers in, um, Connecticut. Uh, it was his first that he did in the North, actually, because he was he had been going to um, slave dwellings in the South. Um, and uh, I just think that doing that, you know, invites people to really consider um, just how prevalent slavery was and um, how how much of a fabric of our country it was. And, um, you know, also for people like when we went to Connecticut, you know, people forget that there was slavery in the North, you know, oh, right. uh, I mean, we could walk down our street in our town and walk by a house, you know, where slaves most likely dwelled in the attic there. So, um, so his is one way just, just to bring back to our memory, you know, like, how slavery is just a part of the fabric of our country. And then there are people who were doing things that were more, you know, personal, um, like, um, you know, trying to restore um, burial grounds to enslaved people that maybe had been uh, kind of forgotten about, you know, or maybe sometimes these, these cemeteries are on private property, you know, so trying to think of ways to open them up to their descendants so that people can go and visit, you know, and just put, pay, pay their respects. Um, or like with the, the last story with the, the two Betty and, and, um, Phoebe, um, that's an amazing story. It's an amazing story, right? Amazing. And what I found so simple yet so important about that is that Phoebe asked Betty, like, what could be helpful? Like, she really wanted to do something, um, and she didn't just take it upon herself to come up with some idea, you know? <laughs> she right. asked Betty, like, what, what, what could be helpful? I, and told her what she'd really like to do, and then was able to... Uh, do something that uh, was helpful for Betty and Betty's, well, really for Betty's, you know, family. So um, that to me is the most important thing, you know, when we talk about like, what can I do? Like, as opposed to, I don't know, sometimes I think, I think we put the cart before the horse, you know, and uh, come up with, with ways to, 
to fix something before we've really asked somebody, well, how have you been harmed and what would, what would be a good way to, to repair this breach? That is really interesting. Uh, because part of part of these narratives are recounting how families had been harmed, uh, and that well, just in the Betty and Phoebe story, the fact that people were willing to close schools to everybody rather than let them be integrated—I yeah. I don't think I had ever heard that. Um, I might have and had forgotten it, but that was just small details like that were profoundly shocking. Um, yeah that how do you undo that um, when ostensibly this little girl went through that um, very brave but traumatic experience? Very Just traumatic. understanding that history. I And hear people talk about it in real terms of it being their family members. It's not just a history book that these were people's family members that went through this and needed to be remembered because it would never be remembered. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's pretty remarkable. Betty, Betty's dad had to sue the state to, for her to be able to go to the school that was, you know, right in their, right in their town. Right. Um, and we, I think we often think about that as, as very, you know, very far in our past, but, you know, Betty's walking around <laughs> breathing, you know, and, and, and this was her young, young life, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, all of this is much closer, I think, than we really, uh, give heedance to and, and that it's, it's very much still with us, this legacy of slavery. To, a similar a similar thread to this I found, and this this is actually popping into more current conversation um, when people talk about white privilege and just part of white privilege is not knowing. Like you've been walking around or one has been walking around and not understanding these harms or not even paying attention or it happening and you're unaware of it. And the story of the people growing up in the same town, and then they find out later that one was the slave-owning family and one was the the enslaved family, mm-hmm. and that they had been living essentially parallel lives. Um, and then they come together, these descendants come together. I, it, I'd I'd love to hear what you think that that tells us, uh, you know, what we don't know out there. Um, we might be connected in different ways that we have no idea, and the power of that. Um, just um, mm-hmm. what what is your experience with stories like that, and what they may to con- what they may convey to people now? Yeah, what I think is the real important. I think in that particular instance you're talking about Bill Sizemore's story and I mm. what I think is is really important about a story like that is that it really um, demonstrates that uh, slavery its legacy racism is everybody's problem it's not 
it's not just a, a black person's problem. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of times racism gets framed as like, well, you know, sorry, you know, we're sorry that that happens to you. But um, I think when, you know, someone can see just how and, and describe uh, just how connected their families had been right. and how different the outcomes were for their lives, I think it really shows the impact and it explains the, um, the reality of white privilege and um, that white privilege and anti-blackness affect all of us. And the outcomes are very, very different and still in effect. So I think that's the power of seeing a story like that. I think a lot of times um, people can feel like, you know, yeah, that is really sorry. You know, that's bad that that happened, but that doesn't have anything to do with me. Like my ancestors just got here, you know, mm-hmm. a few generations ago or whatever. But when you um, can see a story like that and really understand just how instrumental slavery was in building people's wealth, you know, whether they had a bunch of slaves or not and, and um, contributing to, you know, um, skin privilege then you can see how um, whether you just immigrated here or not, you know, you do get, if you're, if you're white, you do get benefits from, from your skin color, you know? Mm. Um, So, um, so I just think that a story like that kind of lays the foundation for um, how um, the legacy of slavery continues to impact people today. It, it made me think that so much of this, the, the, the discussion around this often is so abstract and reading someone's very simple story, um, no matter what, what their perspective suddenly opens all these doors that the abstract conversations of policy issues in the contemporary, uh, whatever rem- remediation efforts are going to be happen, never, ever take into account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. That the the story can get the the discussion around it now can get very abstract, and then just to hear people who are living and breathing right now be able to talk about having grown up on you know the property where their families were enslaved, or yes. you know, or people to be able to talk about growing up on the, on the property that, you know, where they enslaved people, you know, brings it, brings it home, that this isn't abstract. Yeah. The, you mentioned that in your own genealogical research, you had come in contact with some, uh, uh, a connection and that it always wasn't easy. Um, that was part of the interesting part of this book is there's constant dramatic tension, right? Are they going to find clues to their past, uh, where their ancestors were, what happened to them, or what did they do? But also, is it going to be hard? Is it going to, are people going to be angry or ashamed or mean? Uh, Just if you, 
if you could to like describe some of your own experience looking into your research and how that felt, because it is a part of the story that is very central to the book. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, as I said in your, uh, in the introduction, um, I contacted coming to the table after I had been working with what coming to the table describes as they call linked descendants. So linked descendants are people you are connected to through a history of, of slavery, but not necessarily through blood. Um, so in my case, I, uh, contacted descendants of the family who had uh, enslaved my great-great-grandmother because uh, the husband had, he was an art historian and he'd written a book about uh, his family and his wife's family. It was his wife's family who I was connected to. And Mm -hmm. I was interested in reading the book because I heard that it had a picture of my great-great-grandmother in it. And so I hoped that it might also have some information in it. So I contacted him and he immediately knew the picture I was talking about. And um, I arranged to get, you know, two copies of the books, one for me, one for my uh, cousin. And then he offered, he just kind of started to offer information. Um, He had some portraits that were connected to my family that I might want to see and, uh, some other information. And so we began working together and, you know, I really did not think about our connection that much. I was just so focused on getting information about my great, great grandmother that I didn't really, I wasn't really thinking about who he was in this story. Um, and then I was also just really grateful that he was so helpful. Um, and he was able to really help me and, and, you know, I helped him too with some things that I had found that were helpful to, you know, filling out, filling in some gaps about their, their family story. Um, but at a certain point he found out something from the eldest person in their family that was painful. He found out about a lynching, Mm. um, that my great, great grandmother's son, um, had been lynched. That was the story that, um, he'd heard. And once I started looking into this potential lynching to try and find out, you know, if it was true, if it was connected to our family, he just seemed to get really, um, upset. (laughs) Um, and I, I, you know, I don't know what that was about. Um, but, um, he just started to get, uh, kind of annoyed with me. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I had a, had a blog at the time that was all about this research and I used it, um, to, um, share with other people in the genealogy community, what I was searching for, and also hopefully to get some feedback and tips on how to find things that I was looking for. So I shared about this lynching and it really, really made him mad. Um, and, uh, I could only suspect that maybe there was shame, like some kind of displaced shame that like maybe that, you know, or a fear that their family might've had something to do with it. Um, I, I didn't find any, um, anything that would back that up, but maybe 
there was some fear about that. I don't know. But um, that's when I, that's when I reached out to coming to the table because it was very um, difficult for me. Um, on the one hand, I was really grateful that he was sharing information that, you know, really at this point was their private information. I couldn't get access to this information if he didn't, you know, share it with me, which is its own, you know, annoyance and problem that I have to ask the people (laughs) um, who enslaved my family to help me find information (laughs) about my family. So there's that. Um, But, you know, he was being helpful and generous. But then when the story, this is my framing, this is how I felt about it. When I'm looking for things outside of the narrative that he wants to talk about, <laughs> now he's mad, you know? Um, and, you know, it's, it's lynching. That's, it's horrific and it's painful. Um, so I'm sure he was having his own reaction to that. But the fact of the matter is it was my family's story and I needed to find out the information I needed to find out. And I didn't want to be hampered by, by trying to be polite. Um, Mm. and so I just needed, I I needed to, to connect with other people who might be in this similar situation. And so coming to the table definitely was helpful to me in that way. And, um, yeah, it's it's you know it's a minefield. What can I tell you? <laughs> well, there's certainly there there are some instances in the book of people encountering on on, on coming from both perspectives, uh, parts of stories that people don't want to have out there for whatever reason, um, and it made me made me think I was interested in hearing you that one of the lasting issues is that in some ways this has been passed down silently from generation to generation, racial attitudes without even saying anything, just with, it's like the lack of story around it. uh, For whatever reason, managing the message would be the corporate way or political way of saying it, but it, it, did you find that, that in some ways this generational from the passing down of silence is almost as insidious as any overt racial action out there? Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, I, I think you see that in a lot of the stories of the people who are descended from enslavers that you know, they had a part of their family's story that their family was comfortable with them knowing and then were shocked to find out this whole other side of the story um, and uh, having to come to terms with that and getting pushback, some of them talk about, getting pushback from their families as they try to, you know, confront this real story of enslavement in their family, of their families enslaving people. Um, you know, people, they're being told, you know, don't put that out there. You know, why would you do that? And, um, so, um, that's very powerful, you know, um, and for people who were descended from, um, the enslaved, 
You see also, and this happened in my own family of, I, I don't know if it's shame or what, but not wanting to um, maybe admit that, that people in your family had been enslaved. Um, so that was something that I saw repeated in, in, in that um, among, you know, people who were descended from, in, from the enslaved. Right. So yeah, there's a dual, dual shame there. Yeah, I'm sorry. Exactly. It, which I find really interesting. It, it, it almost is the blocking point for any discussions about can we all, I, I, I'm not trying to be flippant, but can we all get along kind of thing. There's this dual shame blockages saying, well, I don't want to be seen as being connected with all that, even though it was such a gigantic part of the U.S. economy. Exactly. There has to be connections, you know, uh, or, and then on the flip side, um, this was really painful that we were descended from people who were brought here as slaves or grew up here as slaves. Another thing that's sprinkled throughout the book, the legal structures, pretty astounding. Um, did you find this even illuminating that throughout these stories that people are talking about these legal structures in place and all the laws and essentially the whole system that was around built up around slavery. So, um, you know, I started to really read and learn about, um, those laws when I was in college. Um, I took some, mm -hmm. I, I studied journalism, but I took a lot of African American history classes whenever I could. And, uh, but having said that, I have to say, every time I would be reminded of the very systematically um, created laws around like race and, you know, miscegenation and all that stuff, it was as if I was reading it for the first time because it's so often, you know, it just, it's so often not really discussed or a part of the, um, a part of the, conversation, but particularly the rules around, um, how, how like enslavement became a, a thing based on the mother and her child, you know, so that's like basically making it racializing slavery, right? Like it's, um, if it's always going to be, you know, if any child born out of a woman who was enslaved, I mean, that's like making it perpetuity, number one. And then, um, right. you know, uh, one of our authors talks about the racializing of, of slavery uh, by all of the, the codes that were written in the, in, in the 1600s in uh, the Virginia, um, Virginia territory. And um, I guess, so yeah, I guess I I it does feel like reading it anew, you know, when when um people talk about it in this very personal way connected to their um to their family stories. But the, yeah, there were definitely there's definitely information that, you know, people were writing about that I didn't ever know about. Um uh it's hard to hard to keep up with which states allowed slavery, which states didn't, and um, moments. Also, the thing about miscegenation, you know, sometimes uh, in, a, in a state's history, it was okay, you know, to, to 
have right. a relationship with someone who wasn't your race, then it wasn't okay. So keeping up with all of that was a lot. I, I was really surprised to learn about the information about from the writer who writes about uh, his ancestors being in Oregon and uh, uh, bringing right. uh, an enslaved man there and keeping him in slavery when Oregon is supposed to be a free state. So, so there was a lot. Yeah, there was a lot of information. I'd forgotten yeah. about the Oregon story. That that was that really really shocked me. That it, it not it was a great example of exactly how widespread this was. Um, it was not confined to the what everybody thinks of as the legacy Confederate right. states. Uh, it had it had spread everywhere basically. Yeah. And kind of allowed to go on even beyond the laws of Oregon, et cetera. Yeah. I, and the, I, I could talk to you a long time about a lot of these stories, but the one that the one about the legal structures that really got me was the, the writer who was talking about his family, who was a was one of the largest slave trading families from the north, and that when it became illegal to transatlantically import slaves. Their their business pivot, so to speak, was just to resell the f- slaves from the north to the south, yeah. uh, so we, and then yeah. all the codification yeah. of having a mother and her children being invaluable. It was really painful stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he, yeah, talking about the domestic slave trade. Then when it pivots from you know international to domestic, just. Uh, reselling down south yeah that's tom daywolf um yeah that was another one of those stories you know where uh, years ago i'd seen uh his i guess his cousin's uh documentary uh traces of the trade um about their family you know discovering this history and uh coming to terms with it. And uh, even though I'd seen that, you know, it just is mind boggling really to um, hear people's personal story with it. You know, it's the same family, but he has his own, his own journey with it. And um, it's just remarkable how much, information about slavery is still like just not not taught you know there's certain things not taught not discussed so one of the things i want to wrap up on is uh i i did not find the book altogether i found it quite hopeful in some ways they're real threads of hope and i think that's what one of the most moving things for me personally about reading it is that somewhere in there I saw mm-hmm. hope. And I wondered, I wanted to ask you sort of a wrap-up question is, did you find that? And and do you how would you describe the hope coming out of these this project? Um like the I kept writing down the human family, like some of these experiences, people were just literally learning that it's kind of, we're kind of all part of the same family. Uh, 
in a very fundamental way. Um, so yeah, just any thoughts that you have on the hope coming, uh, coming from this work and how it might create more hope. Yeah, it's so funny you should say that because at one of the um, coming to the table national gatherings that I went to, I can't remember if it was the first one or the second one, one of the women there had made bumper stickers and she was handing them out and they said, um, creating world peace one cousin at a time. <laughs> um, and and I just think that there, you know, that's very kumbaya, but it's also very true. Like this is, this is very personal, but we, we have seen how personal approaches can create a massive change. Um, and I, I do find so much healing in um, people's very personal approaches to looking at their family's history, seeing where it, in connect, it, in, it interconnects with another family, and in you know the real spirit of reconciliation, um, trying to approach either the family specifically or, you know, more generally to try and, um, consider what ways we could move forward, you know, to, to repair that. Um, and so I don't know, I, I just, I, I got a lot of hope out of this book. It was an extremely moving experience to read everybody's stories and be trusted with them. They're so, you know, personal and, do um, really um, travel very, very sensitive terrain. Um, it was an incredible gift for me to be able to spend the night in um, the uh, slave dwelling in Connecticut with Joe and to see just how um, important his, his work is, you know, um, because he, you know, he will tell you a bit about um, um, life. He, he was a, he used to be with the National uh, Park Service, um, so um, he's he's you know very good at at explaining at being in his docent job. Um, and it's just really moving to be in that in that space, you know, a sacred space, and to be able to see that that's what these spaces are, and that's why they should be preserved, you know, so that we can stay connected to. Um, to the fabric of this country and how it was created, you know, um, and just to go forward, you know, these are all people doing things individually, but, you know, I do have a lot of hope that, um, their individual efforts can now be combined with some more national efforts that are happening as we saw, you know, finally after, I don't know, some, I don't know how many, uh, maybe 30 years of the HR 40 bill being presented that finally it's gotten through one, one chamber of our government and it's, you know, it's moved on to the next. Um, uh, this is just to study reparations. This isn't even about, you know, um, right. physically giving reparations. So, but, but it does give me hope, you know, um, and uh, I hope that um, as these kinds of efforts continue to move forward that um, uh, people like, you know, the members of our organization will be a, um, you know, a, a, someone that, you know, folks will turn to, to say, 
okay, well, give us your feedback. You've been doing this, you know? Um, so, um, that does give me hope here in New Jersey. Now, um, there's a, a reparations bill also, um, that I really hope will be, um, moved forward as well. Um, so yeah, I am hopeful. I'm pessimistically hopeful <laughs> just because you know, we have such I a understand. bad, we have a bad record in this country of, of, uh, taking one step forward and like four back, you know? So I'm kind of hoping that the momentum of, uh, our like awakening this past summer, uh, that came from a lot of violence will, uh, will, will usher us forward with, you know, more urgency towards at the very least passing the HR 40 bill at the national level. And uh, some of the, you know, the, the state one that's being proposed right now. Um, and we'll, you know, help people to really look uh, personally at uh, what they can do to be a part of, of repairing this, this very deep wound. That's it for this edition of Montclair Talk. Stay tuned for future episodes ahead, and thanks for listening.